Welcome to Stir the Pot, a podcast all about food and the people that love it. I'm your host, Ed Kimber. Hey guys, and welcome back to Stir the Pot, a podcast all about food and the people that love it. And before we get started, I wanted to say a massive thank you to those of you who came back. We haven't had an episode in two years, and so many of you came back and listened to our new episode. So I was thrilled about that, and the response has been really lovely. You all seem to enjoy it, so I'm also very, very happy about that. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to chat about what I'm cooking this week. I thought it might be useful to go through a little bit of what cooking is like these days whilst we're all stuck at home, and I thought each week I could do a little check-in about what I'm making, what I'm cooking, um, and maybe even a cocktail, because if there's never a time for a cocktail, I don't know a better time than right now. Um, But before we get to that, let's talk about food. So the one thing we have been doing in our little apartment is trying to make things stretch to to make things that can last more than one night because as much as I love being in the kitchen, I am finding being in the kitchen for work and then in the evening is causing extra stress and anxiety that isn't normally there. And I think it's because there's no separation and I'm feeling kind of trapped a little bit. So making things that stretch is definitely always a nice idea. And one of those things that actually I didn't make, but my boyfriend made last week, was a delicious beef cheek ragu. And I will say, I didn't make it, but it is my recipe, so maybe that counts for something. Um, The nice thing about a beef cheek ragu, or any of those slow-cooked cuts of beef, or, or other meats really, is that they can go a lot longer, so they can feed more people or make more uh, meals. So, unlike, say, a steak where you're having a big piece of meat, the beef cheek ragu is a sauce and the meat breaks down and it ends up, you know, you need a lot less for how many meals it makes. So it's a great option and it's a cheaper cut, which is always welcome. The nice thing about that ragu is it also freezes incredibly well. So our freezer is stocked full of beef cheek ragu. If you want that recipe, it is already on my website, so you can go and have a cook of that yourself. In terms of baking, crumble was something we turned to this weekend. The nice thing about a crumble or a crisp, depending on where you are in the world, is that, um, again, you can freeze so many elements of it. So I had some apples that were on their way to being past their prime, really, and I had some blackberries left over from a project, and I had them in the freezer. When the apples weren't going to get eaten and they were just about to get bruised, I peeled them, cored them, chopped them into chunks, threw them in the freezer, And they were there ready for me when I needed to make something. And a crumble emergency is a thing. I stand by it. It's a real thing. And this is the way to solve it. So the other nice thing about crumble is it's so easy to make. And the topping, which you can make in big batches, is also easily one of the best things to freeze. I try and have a bag of crumble mixture in the freezer most of the time. So all I have to do is get some fruit, add a bit of sugar, a little bit of acid maybe depending on the fruit, in the shape of lemon juice, Um, and then that's it really. It's the most basic of desserts. You throw in the crumble from frozen, throw it in the oven, and you don't even really need a guide to how long to cook it for. The general rule is bake it until the crumble is browned and the filling is bubbling. Once you've got those two things, you're ready. It's so, so easy. And the other best thing about it, and I know there's many best things that I'm telling you about this dish, is that you can also um, make small portions of it. So if you've got the topping in your freezer, you don't have to follow a recipe 
guideline for how much to serve there. If there's just two of you or even just one of you in your household like there is here, you can just make small portions, meaning you waste less, you're not needing to buy as much fruit. It's a really great option. Now, a cocktail to go along with that, my favorite at the moment is the last word. It's actually one of my all-time favorite cocktails. And the great thing about it is it is the easiest cocktail in the world to remember because it's the equal parts ratio of all four ingredients. So all you need, and it, there is a few random ingredients, but once you have them, this will make you many cocktails, and it's a really easy one. So you need equal parts of gin, green chartreuse, and then which is a kind of French herbal liqueur, and then you also need some maraschino liqueur, which is made from cherries but doesn't really taste of cherries, and then lime juice. So I use 25 ml of each of those. Uh, you put it into a cocktail shaker with ice, you give it a good old shake until the shaker is nice and cold, and then you strain it and serve it. It's super easy, it's delicious, it's refreshing, and I think I should have made one for this interview. Not that I needed it, because this interview coming up is one of my favourites I've done. It's one of my favourite people. She is a pastry queen, a pie empresario, a master of butter, sugar, eggs, and flour. She's the go-to baker for the New York Times and Food 52. It is Baker Erin McDowell. She's also the author of The Fearless Baker, and she has an upcoming book released later this year in the autumn called The Book on Pie. She is someone I would trust her baking recipes implicitly, her advice implicitly. She knows what she's talking about, and she's also a brilliant person, so I cannot wait to get to the episode. Um, as always, there is an extra bonus episode to the podcast that you'll be able to find over on patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes. Um, but for now, let's get to the main part of the interview with Erin. I think it's automatically given you a nickname of Sincere Transmitter. So sincere. <laughs> it was really funny because when I was recording with um uh, uh when I was recording the other day, it called someone let me find it because it's brilliant, agreeable astronaut, and it was Shauna, and I kept thinking, I didn't want to say anything. I kept thinking, why is Shauna's screen name Sincere Astronaut? <laughs> And I've now realized it's just it automatic. Just automatic. I do love that, though. And I feel like sincere is an appropriate moniker mm -hmm. for me. So we'll, I'll yeah, take sincerely it. Sincerely <laughs> transmitting across the internet. <laughs> I will do all the intro stuff later because I can't do it when I'm looking at someone. I find it really awkward. But I, I am calling you, I'm going to call you a pie empresario. So Ooh. that will be part of your introduction. <laughs> I'll pick that, too. <laughs> There was so, an article um, somebody did recently and they said self-proclaimed pie queen. And I was like, I've <laughs> definitely never self-proclaimed that, but now I will because it literally I, says <laughs> my intro says uh, today I'm joined by a pastry queen, but I didn't get that from anywhere. I just thought I'll write that. Pie well, empresario. I love that. I love that. <laughs> but anyway, it amuses me greatly regardless. <laughs> I find it really funny when people say self-proclaimed and you're like, I don't remember I, ever I just, like, that. would I never say that ever about anything. Like I would, I mean, <laughs> that is just not who I am. But that said, I, I did say I wanted to bring like a Lizzo level of confidence to 2020. <laughs> so like, maybe I need to like start proclaiming stuff like proclaim. I, I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. I once did a, um, like a spoken word event 
and it was meant to talk about food memory or something. It was a very long time ago. And this very famous um, food person, that's all I will say, it was doing the introductions. He was like the MC, and I'd never met this man before. I had been on the scene for like a year, and he hadn't asked for any kind of anything to read about his. He just gave an intro. And he had found some bio that my publisher had written. And it was really kind of like, you know, aggrandizing. And he ripped it to shreds in the <laughs> rudest way. And he was like, this person thinks he is this. And I was like, oh, I've never, I've not like, even that heard. That was clearly this. written by a marketing team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's ridiculous. And then I had to get on stage for an hour and talk about my food memories when the audience thinks I'm this <laughs> You've just been torn down. Oh, oh you're a it pro. Was awful. It was awful. <laughs> Anyway, we should officially start the podcast. Yes. So, and before we start, by the way, I need to say thank you for taking your time out of your um, your pitter party. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. <laughs> so I should say it's a pita and pity so- party over here. <laughs> I'm, it's a little bit of both. I'm delighted to be doing something that uh, is not just sitting in my pajamas, basically. So. Well, I, I have to say, I, I may keep this uh, this bit in because I think it's been very funny. But I have to say, <laughs> where I've only recorded one other so far in this new kind of, I don't know, season. And it has been like the joy of my day when I do it. Because I'm in my house with my boyfriend, who I love very much. But there is something about other human connection that I'm sure. shocked at how much I'm missing. And so. it's funny because I'm sort of that way too. I'm a little bit like I, I'm a social person, but I am a homebody. Mm. And so in a lot, and I work from home a lot. So a lot about this hasn't seemed that weird. And then I talk to someone and I'm just like, oh my God, I miss <laughs> you. <laughs> because it really is just like, you know, you don't, you don't realize how much. And I've been mm. trying to schedule you know, some talks like that, especially with the video. It's so great that we have yeah. that ability because it does. Definitely. But yes, I feel this is the joy of my week already and we haven't even really started yet. <laughs> well, on that note, we shall start. So um, the question we always start the podcast with is how did food become the thing that you live for? And I think you are someone who has truly taken the idea to its end point because food seems to be the thing you've always had in your life. So tell us how that started. Well, I love that question because I think it tells you a lot about a person, what, Mm. you know, why they love food so much, even though we all also probably love it for a lot of the same reasons. Um, I grew up in a food loving family and it wasn't until I started pronouncing, (laughs) announcing rather that I was, going to go to culinary school that it sort of seemed like it made sense because my whole family was crazy about food. I even have this aunt. She's not a cook in any way. The one thing she makes really well is mashed potatoes and she does make (laughs) them very well. Um, But she, even though she is not a cook, she was um, just loved restaurants and knew Mm. all the best new restaurants and would take us to various places. She was one of the first people that started introducing me to different styles of cuisine from around the world. And And so even the people in my family that didn't just inherently love cooking 
loved food. My brother brews his own beer and, you know, there's just this kind of whole thing. And it mostly started from the fact that my parents grow a lot of their own vegetables and you have an appreciation for food Mm. when you see where it comes from. And, um, and also I loved to eat. And when you love to eat, then uh, learning to cook is so exciting. And so from a relatively young age, I got pretty excited about helping my mom in the kitchen and helping my grandma, um, my paternal grandmother, um, who was a little less perfect in the kitchen. My mom is very good. And my grandma Mm. was a little more like, let's just see what happens. And because of that, I was a little less, um, I was a little less timid in her kitchen, I think. And I particularly fell in love with baking because of the artistic element of it. And I always say that I have two older brothers who are artists and I wanted to be an artist, but I couldn't, I was not, (laughs) (laughs) I just was not, I, I could not. And, um, you know, you can take an art class and become better at drawing. And I, I did those things. I, I tried, yeah. but I didn't have that natural ability that my brothers did. But when I'm baking, I feel like it's my medium and it's that's very exciting kind of, to find yeah. that. Um, so that's really why I love I, I love the connection that it has for me from memories and to specific people. And I love it as an art form, you know, it's become my um, job and it's also still my hobby. <laughs> I think that's the nicest thing because I often think about how for me, baking became a job after I'd been doing another thing for a long time and it had been my hobby at one point and then became a job. And I find that whole change in career that a lot of people in food have really fascinating but i think the thing that you have that's fascinating in the opposite way is that food seems to have been that thing that you always wanted to do um you went to culinary school i read somewhere that your first job was in a bakery um and i think it's really interesting to know someone who has always had that thing and has always wanted to do it um you grew up in kansas right I did. <laughs> what was the food like in Kansas when you were growing up? Um, well, you know, it's funny. The one thing that I say about being kind of from the middle, as I very affectionately call it, <laughs> is, um, you know, it's not always the most exciting food in terms of um, just even when I was growing up, the availability of ingredients. And of course, mm. that has completely changed from when I was a child to now. Um, My mom couldn't get cilantro, for example, in a grocery store. So she decided to grow it herself because she loved cilantro. So that gives you an idea of, you know, some of those rumors are are true a little bit. But the one thing is, is that there, you know, it is, it's the land of homemade, you know, like people make things from scratch. And I grew up with a mom that baked bread from scratch, which was one of the things in particular that like it took until, you know, midway through elementary school for me to figure out that that wasn't normal, that not everyone's <laughs> mom was baking the bread. And um, and so there's something, you know, not again, not that it's universal, that absolutely every single person in Kansas is baking their own bread, but mm. you meet a lot of people that are um, making things from scratch. Sometimes that has to do with um, remoteness, you know, like I grew up 30 minutes from the nearest grocery store. So, you know, we planned things out a little bit more than Mm. now, you know, I can take my granny cart and go to four stores within five blocks, you know, and so a very different, um, sort of thing, but 
you know, the the foods that I have the most memories of are, you know, all of the carbs, you know, lots of potato oh, memories, lots of bread memories, lots of pie <laughs> memories. And, um, and also, um, my family sort of loving food so much that they get really excited about trying something new. Like we have a tradition now that on um, Christmas, we kind of pick a genre. Like this year we had pho um, noodle soup nice. for, for Christmas. And, you know, so that's, it's, um, you know, the, the, a lot of wheat is grown there. So maybe that's why I have so many <laughs> carb related <laughs> memories, but um, definitely kind of memories of making things from scratch and pickles and canning and things like that too. I mean, that to me sounds definitely very similar to how I think of, a rural upbringing being, you know, much more a connected to ingredients because access is less or you're growing them more. So that all makes sense. Did you ever feel when you were younger that that was different than other people, that the people around you didn't have that connection or was it because you were rural? Everyone was kind of in the same sort of boat. Well, yes, I did kind of experience that it was different because, um, I I grew up kind of in the country, but I went to Mm. school in town. And um, so there were a lot of people that, um, in fact, the thing I always joke about is there was a point in my elementary school life in particular where it was quite coveted to be invited to a party or a sleepover (laughs) at my house because the food was very good. And I, I think about that now because it was like, you know, just another thing when I was a kid, but that my mom yeah. had like very high value in the schoolyard and she didn't even know it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I definitely could notice that it was different. Um, but that said, for every person that I had in my life that it was different, I also had some people in my life who had that same sort of thing. So Mm. um, I had a close friend growing up who, you know, we called her a neighbor and she was a neighbor, but, you know, it took me 10 minutes to walk (laughs) to her house. (laughs) Yes. So she, but she, you know, her family um, did things more similarly to how we did. And then, you know, maybe some of my school friends, it was a little bit different. Mm. I read in, I read a bunch of interviews um, with you. And one of them, I, or a few of them I read, your grandma seems to come up as a kind of ever-present person in your, not storytelling, but in your kind of the lore of your upbringing and kind of why you do pastry. Um, and I heard that she was the first person to introduce you to making pie. Is that right? Yes. So my grandma, Jean, um, who that's where my middle name comes from um, mm. and why I use my full name in so much of my professional stuff is because of my grandma. Um, you yeah. know, I wasn't ever published or anything in an official capacity until after my grandma had passed away. So it's sort of like one of the things I carry with me a little bit. She, um, again, she was a very good cook and baker, but she was, very humble about everything that she Mm. did. So, you know, she would legitimately put down roast chicken or fried chicken in front of you and be like, Oh, I don't know. It'll be okay. I hope I didn't mess it up, you know, and it would just be like this delicious fried chicken. But she was very, um, you know, she was willing to kind of experiment and 
I was about 14 when we started baking together when I would go to visit her. And um, I don't know, she lived in the absolute middle of nowhere. She lived in a town called Overbrook, Kansas, which um, their slogan is don't overlook Overbrook. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how tiny it is. Incredibly quaint. And I don't know, it feels like that should be like rolling uh, moss going through the town. (laughs) It's like a hand-painted sign that has the logo. There is a painted sign that is is on the side of like a a little building. Was your um, house on the prairie? It's straight up an actual little house on the prairie. um, It's five to ten minutes outside of Overbrook. So Overbrook Mm -hmm. already being tiny, this house... (laughs) Um, you know, it had a windmill and a barn, and the house that my grandma lived in was built by my great 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 grandparents. It was an original wow. homestead home, and um, it had always kind of been in my family. And when I was fourteen, whether it was for lack of other things that we used to do together, like you know, we used to go to the toy store and look around, mm-hmm. and we'd go to the zoo. And as I got older, if there weren't those things to do, I found that I was just really enjoying spending time with her at her house. And of course, at her house, there was not very much to do. And so we (laughs) baked and we started by baking bread together. And then we sort of transitioned into um, pies originally as a joke, because we would eat the entire loaf of bread we would bake together. (laughs) And she was like, we've got to stop doing that. But I don't know why she (laughs) thought it would be any better with pie, because obviously then we just had warm pie and that was delicious too. And, um, and we experimented a lot um, in her kitchen. You know, we weren't always following a recipe and that is something that I wasn't doing when I was baking with my mom, you know, with my mom, I was following more. Yeah typical recipes and sometimes recipes she'd been making for a long time so that she knew them by heart. And with my grandma, it was a little more, "Eh, let's throw that in there. Let's see how that, yeah. And so I think that that gave me a a good perspective into whether I knew it or not, I was sort of learning to develop recipes with her Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I think to develop good recipes, you have to not be afraid of making a mistake, as I'm sure you can attest. I have just as many disasters sometimes as I have successes. (laughs) So, um, yeah. It's it's funny because on that point, I've I've been asked over the last 10 years, the most often question I get is, do you make mistakes? And I think you say something that's so valid because I always say you learn way more by making mistakes than you learn from making it once and making it perfectly. Because mm-hmm. how do you know if something's working if you don't know why it's working? Absolutely. So you have to really value mistakes. But it also sounds like with your grandma, um, you really got that curiosity like to yeah, try I think to play around. For sure. For sure. I think at that point, I realized that I was really enjoying time in the kitchen. But the time in my mom's kitchen was a little more um, regulated. And so mm-hmm. at grandma's house, it was just in the same way that at grandma's house is for all things, you know, yeah, you get to let your hair down a little bit more and have a little more fun. Um, and also, um, we weren't really afraid of messing up because it was just mm. the two of us. So if we did make a mistake, no one even had to knew, know that we had been baking that day. And if we were <laughs> successful, we would go and deliver things to her, um, again, using this term yeah. loosely because they were quite far away, neighbors. <laughs> and that was the other thing that I really fell in love with, with baking was 
that um, it was something that other people enjoyed so much and that you could kind of, even when I worked behind the counter of a bakery and I wasn't physically interacting with the people that were buying the baked goods, I was like making someone's day better. Yeah. And that was exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I think every baker that I've ever talked to has that same kernel of wanting to be the people pleaser and wanting to make people happy. And I think it's a real difference between a cook and a baker because my joke is always that a cook or a chef, it's less about transformation and it's more about requirement. And I mean, obviously there's way more than that, but at its base, cooking is to make us survive and baking is to make us happy. And I think that seems to be a universal thing that bakers just really want to, you know, shove that cake in people's face and make them smile. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. That is like the long and short term goal of my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any recipes that you still make that you made with your grandma back in those days? Yes, there are several. I mean, really, my pie crust recipe, the way that I make it now came from those days with my grandma as well, though we though we disagreed on on pie crust in some ways. Really? She she liked to use half shortening and half butter, butter for flavor and shortening because it's a little easier to work with. And, you know, as I got better at making things, that was when I realized that it was possible to have that Mm -hmm. same texture that shortening gives and then just have all the flavor, which was exciting. Um, so, you know, we, we weren't always on the, on the same page about everything, but I have several recipes that I use. One is, um, a recipe that she gave me that her mom made for tomato jam. And that was something that they put on pancakes. Um, she said, which again, that sounded completely crazy to me when she was Mm. telling me about it and sort of, um, depression era, you know, like they weren't putting syrup and other things and pancakes were a pretty normal food. Um, And it's sweet. It's not savory. And of course, tomato is a fruit. Um, It's a very sweet application. If you tasted it, you might not know that it was tomato. Truthfully, it's it's lightly spiced. I make that and I've used it also in savory applications now because I think it's really good like on a grilled cheese. It's good in a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of different ways. And another recipe that I have that's really special is my donut recipe, which um, actually came from a recipe box that grandma gave me that it was the little recipe card was handwritten by her grandma. So my wow. great great grandma and their um, yeast donuts, and they are Amazing. delicious. And I make them that same way, pretty much. So, I think family recipe boxes are treasure troves of not even necessarily recipes, although obviously that's the first thing we think of. Um, but I think just having that little bit of history, that handwritten note, is the best thing my uh, maternal grandmother, my Nana, she had this recipe tin. And when I wrote my first book, I went through it and found a bunch of recipes that my parents, my mom had never made us as kids because either she didn't like them or she didn't feel connected to them or she had too much of a connection to them. And because my Nana had passed away at such a young age, she didn't feel she could make them. And so having to rediscover those is such a nice moment and then to have my nana who passed away when i was three to have her handwritten recipes that are now in my books 
I think like your, um, you know, using your Nana's uh, pie recipe and, you know, using your, her, her, her name, I think is such a nice way of carrying on that family legacy. That well, I think is... we, that's the tie of food, right? Is this oh, like 100%. connection that it has even when people are gone and um, this incredible, the memory of sense, the memory of taste, like yeah. those are really powerful tools. And yeah, I, I feel really lucky to have such a family history mm. and with, with food and baking. But I will also say that I feel like, um, for example, I don't have the same history on my mother's side, as in it's not sure. all as documented and all. And learning it from my paternal grandmother kind of then put that fire under me to start asking those questions of my yeah. mom's side of the family as well. And um, and that's sort of what I hope that I'm sharing when I talk about my family so much in why I love to bake is that I hope if nothing else, you know, like people might ask their grandma where that recipe yeah. came from, you know, that she always makes every holiday or every, um, because sometimes there's a great story and sometimes there's not, sometimes it's, oh, I got it from this magazine and here it is, you know, and, <laughs> and that's, but you know, there can be some really great stories. And if you yeah. um, don't ask the right question, sometimes those get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I think, I think often food writers and bakers, especially, they do a really good job of documenting their own history, which in turn is documenting a wider history. And it's kind of, I love the idea of heritage recipes and passing down knowledge through storytelling, through recipes, through whichever medium. And I think baking is a really nice way of doing that because it can bond two people in the moment and then that history can go with them down the line and then to future generations as well. And it's somewhat um, timeless too, which, you know. Oh, 100%. Like I think, so many of the recipes don't really need to change. The pie crust recipe doesn't need to change. No. You know, if it ain't broke, don't I fix have, it. <laughs> I have a recipe in, it's in my first book and it's my Nana's gingerbread recipe. We as a family call it parking, which is a specific type of gingerbread, but it's not. So I didn't want to call it that and get told off by people. So it's a gingerbread. Mm. But the... um. The, the recipe is word for word, well, almost. It's my Nana's recipe. I made a mistake in the books, and my mum told me off for it. She said, that's <laughs> not your Nana's recipe. And basically, it's half whole wheat flour, half AP flour, all-purpose plain flour. And I just lost that from my mind, so I did all plain flour. And she literally, the first thing she said was, that is not my mother's recipe. <laughs> <laughs> which she, she nah. has reminded me of a few times, which I think is brilliant. Um, but the only thing that had to be changed in that recipe, other than my mistake, was um, a style of measurement that just doesn't exist anymore because it's such an old recipe. It used a gill <laughs> of milk. I know, oh. I'm just doing hand motions. <laughs> and it's a bar measure. So I keep saying to my mom that my my grandmother, my nana, clearly liked to drink because her milk was in gill measures. Yes, I love that. <laughs> That's so great. So you said that you worked in a bakery when you were 16. Have you always worked in food then? Have you ever had any other jobs? I had one. Well, I babysat also. I was okay. a great babysitter. Um, <laughs> I For mean, you sure. brought a pie. Of course you were the book. Yeah, I baked <laughs> cookies with the kids and they <laughs> liked me. And yes. Um, no, I my very first job, which was right before I got the job in the bakery, um, I were 
it's so silly to even say. I worked polishing furniture in an antique store <laughs> where I got paid $5 an hour in cash. I would work Saturdays for three hours. And then my I did this with my best friend, Susie. And then we would go next door and spend all 15 of the dollars that we made at this restaurant. So that was my first job. And uh, I learned a lot about proper care of wood. <laughs> but also, not I much. can't think of a more boring job than just polishing furniture for three hours well but day. with your best friend so you're you're I mean, 15 you can just have you're a nice 15 chat. and you're in an empty store full of breakables with your best friend <laughs> and you're just cleaning them and uh oh yeah God. it is one of the silliest things but yes then I got a job I sort of figured out um the summer that I turned 16 I went to this um sort of a college prep sort of mm -hmm. summer camp, which makes me sound really fun. Um, <laughs> but you like lived in a dorm and you took a couple classes at the college and I was taking creative writing classes and some other things. And I figured out that um, I kind of made that connection I mentioned to you before with art and yeah. baking. And um, that was when I got home, I started applying for jobs in bakeries and there aren't very many in my hometown. Mm. Um, but I got, there's a little bit of a gray area. I believe you're not really supposed to work in a professional kitchen in the state of Kansas until you're 18, but I was able to get somebody to look the other way. And I was hired <laughs> when I was 16 and I would go after school and I would make scones scone mix so that in mm. the morning the morning baker just had to add the cream and yeah. the fruit or whatever to them so i would make the scone mix and the muffin mix and that was like literally all i did for several months was just those wow. two things and then when i graduated or you know when it was summer i was able to start working and no one else wanted the early morning job so i took the early morning I'm a, the summer after my senior year of high school and I was showing up to work at two in the morning. I would have to go to wow. bed at like 7 p.m. It was a rockin' summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's real dedication for someone at that age. I can't imagine many people at, what, 18 willing to start work at 2 a.m. Man, I was it. so excited to be actually doing the baking. But I mean, and not to say that there weren't hard things about it. In fact, one of the sure. funniest things was that the parking lot of where my bakery was um, shared a parking lot with a relatively large bar. So I would be like showing up to work oh, no. as like a 17, 18-year-old as they're all like pouring out. Um, and I never had any problems, but it was more just that like that juxtaposition of I'm starting my day and you haven't even ended yours yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed, and I, like I said, doing the physical baking and manning the ovens. And the best part about it for me was that no other employees were there for the first like six hours yeah. of my workday. And I yeah. found that that's one of the things, even when I worked in larger scale bakeries and there were more people there, the solitude of yeah. baking is something mm -hmm. that I really enjoy about it. I have to say, I, I, Early on in my career, I thought I wanted to be a pastry chef. And I did a couple of stages and I did a pop-up in um, doing an afternoon tea thing. 
And I didn't like the structure of a kitchen, but what I did love was I did this six month, was it six months? Three, I don't remember, three months maybe, afternoon tea kind of pop-up thing. And it was on my own in this very bougie, fancy hotel. And I had the separate pastry kitchen and the restaurant kitchen was next door, but they were very connected. But there was like two hours in the day where they had gone uh, for their break during the day and I was in the kitchen on my own. And I would turn the music on loud and I would just be in my own head zone and I would enjoy it so much. And I think that's why I ended up doing what I do because it's a version of that. I'm at home on my own. And I think there is something really nice about the... I I say it's kind of um, almost meditative when you're baking on your own because you have to concentrate on what you're doing, but you can also lose yourself in it as well. And I think there's something really valuable about that, especially right now. I think that's why baking is so big again right now. Oh, completely. And the more you bake, the more meditative it becomes Mm -hmm. because you aren't, you're concentrating inherently. Like there are so many things that I can make where I don't have to look at a recipe. Well, pie and bread. Yeah. Like I just, you know, you're watching it, you're touching it and you don't have to ever look at a page. You can just kind of do your thing. And Mm. um, yeah, that I agree completely the meditative aspect. And I agree that that's why so many people are baking right now for sure. Definitely. So from a small bakery in a small town in Kansas, how did you end up in New York slash New Jersey. (laughs) Yes, glamorous New York slash New Jersey. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I, one of the things when I first told my parents that I wanted to go to culinary school, um, everyone, you know, my my family are big believers in higher education. They, Mm -hmm. it was never a question about going to college. It was what college are you going to go to? And my, um, I remember that one of the sticking points I realized as soon as I started looking at culinary schools was this is going to be difficult to convince them unless I can get a bachelor's degree. They're not going to think that that's a valuable. So I limited my search at first to schools that offered both culinary classes and bachelor's, a bachelor, full bachelor's degree. And at that time, there were really only two in the United States that did that. Um, Johnson and Wales, which is in Rhode Island, and um, the Culinary Institute of America, which is where I went to school. And I fell in love with the CIA um, immediately in the pictures it looked like Hogwarts. It was I mean, so majestic. It looks like the most beautiful. The people when you come this, we have to take you up there. You oh, will go. I would so, love to go. So much fun. It's such a, and the whole energy of the place, because it's full of all these students that are like exactly the energy level that you and I are having right now with each other. You know, everyone (laughs) is so excited about this thing that they're doing. And it's a place where every single person who works there and uh, is a student there, you know, that food is the most important thing to come back to your very first question that you asked me. So it's just a really, um, I really fell in love with it. And when I went to do a college tour there with mm. my um, dad and he was blown away by it. And, you know, you live in a dorm, you were able to have a pretty traditional, I mean, it's very different, but you still have a college. I mean, you wear chef whites. <laughs> yes, you wear chef whites. And, but I think that that was their concern a little bit was they had said, do you want to go to regular college first that you have that college experience? And I was trying to yeah. say, 
no, because I yeah. know that I want to do this and I don't want to have um, double the student loans. So. I was going to say the <laughs> amount of student debt you would have doing two American colleges. And the funny thing Oof. is so many people that I've come across, that is their story. They went to regular really? college first. I mean, and, and including oh, my yeah. husband, my husband went to regular college first to journalism school and then went to the Culinary Institute. Um, and uh, but a lot of people, it's whether it's career changing and that's why, mm -hmm. or whether it's because, um, you know, you think you're only going to get that, that practical application, the cooking classes. But I, um, that was how I ended up there. And I have to be honest with you, if I had not gone to school there, I really don't know. And I don't mean this in a negative way. It's a lovely place to live, but I don't know that I would have ever left Kansas because mm -hmm. I really am very attached to my family and very, um, you know, and I think about that all the time that like, it just happened to be this school in New York yeah. and that's where I was going. And, and so, um, so I went there, uh, the fall after I graduated from high school and was in school there for four years and, and, um, lived on campus in the dorms and worked <laughs> lots of odd jobs <laughs> around campus. That's where the best of my weird jobs actually lies. You think polishing antique furniture was, <laughs> cool. Wait till you hear about the job I had in the basement where I would take a 25 pound tub of squid ink and portion it into one ounce jars so that they could sell it to the that classroom. That like punishment That's right. than an actual job. No, no. You got paid the big bucks for that job. <laughs> so you say you, you may never have left Kansas, which kind of brings up a question of when you went to culinary school, even if you had gone somewhere else, say in Kansas, what was your end game? What did you want to do with that education? Because obviously, I'm assuming it, or maybe it was, my assumption would be it wouldn't originally be food styling, cookbook writing. Um, so what was that initial aim? I I think at the beginning, I really did just want to work in bakeries. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that was what I was thinking I would end up doing. And much like your experience when you had a few stages, it didn't take long when I enrolled in school to realize, okay, the love of food is real, but mm -hmm. I am not a restaurant person. There were yeah. a variety of things about me that weren't a restaurant person. And the number one that I will cop up to because bakers have a reputation of being super perfectionist, I am not... Mm -hmm. you know, pristine enough <laughs> to work mm -hmm. in most restaurants. And I can acknowledge that it was just never a strength of mine. But I thought that there was a lot to learn from the restaurant way of doing things and taking mm -hmm. the best things I learned in restaurants. And I loved to then share them with my mom or, you know, anyone that I was chatting with. And that's kind of when I realized that maybe I wanted to find something where I was more involved with people cooking and baking at mm -hmm. home. And when I was growing up, I loved to write. And that's why I was at that creative writing camp that summer. And sure. I remember um, I was struggling. I could never, when I was given a writing prompt, I could answer that prompt and come up yeah. with something very creative. But I felt like I didn't have the ideas on my own. And, um, and I got some advice from my dad at one point when I was younger, basically saying, when you figure out what you want to write about, that's when you'll know, you know, what you're, what, where to start more or less. And 
when I started writing about food, it was like such a light bulb moment of just, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I can take this love of words and how I enjoy writing. And again, it's that creative thing I talked to you about before. I guess I always felt like I was a creative person and I just wasn't having much success when I put, you know, pen to paper or paint to canvas or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you had a medium. Exactly. So, uh, so when I started thinking about the writing and cookbooks and, and all of those things where I could maybe um, talk to people at home uh, who were the people that had taught me how to cook, that was when I sort of figured out that media was maybe where my, my home was going to be. And the food styling aspect of it really came about sort of in a, my pursuit to become mm -hmm. a food writer in some way. Um, I had a job at one point where my I was doing editorial work but for cookbooks, but I was also responsible for organizing the photo shoot for the the books that they produced. And I hated it, like truly hated it. It was I didn't think I was good at it. And what I realized with a little bit of time, as you know, the thing about food photo shoots is when they go wrong, they can go oh, really disasters. wrong. Yeah. And that was the thing I didn't like about it at the beginning was this unpredictability and this, mm -hmm. you know, I always felt like something was inches away from disaster in those early days. But what I realized is there's two things that you need. One is the ability to be flexible and go with the flow and make yeah. something out of a disaster when a disaster occurs. And the other is to just be really organized. And if you plan really yeah. well and you're organized and you know what you're doing and you come, then you're not going to have a disaster because you're prepared yeah. anyway. And so kind of once I figured that out, then I was like, oh man, I do like this. And, you know, uh, there's, it's a little bit easier to pay the bills doing food styling than it is doing food writing. And so in the early days, that was what I was doing the bulk of. And then the clients I would meet as a food stylist would sometimes then hire me to write an article or develop a recipe. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of how I got going in that direction. How many books do you think you've styled? I think I read a number once and I think it floored well, me. Well, okay. So I can't say for sure how many books I've styled, but I will <laughs> say this. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to like do that math. I know for a fact that books I have worked on in some capacity as a recipe developer, as an editor, as a food stylist, as whatever, between this first job that I had in publishing and everything that I've done as a freelancer since is probably over 80. That's crazy. Yeah. That I mean, but so... it, again, not just all styling. Some of them, it was no, no, just no, line sure. editing. I, I ghost wrote three books. You know, there were a few things in there. Um, but that, yeah, there's a lot. A, wow. Just in that first job that I had, I, I truly learned so much because they, one in one year, I worked on 15 books in that job. And it was, I worked there for five years. So there were, it wasn't always that same number, but man, yeah, it was, yeah. I, I got my feet wet in a lot of different wow. genres and ways working in that very first um, publishing job. That feels very intense to me. 15 books in a year. I can't do one book in a year and not feel stressed by it. <laughs> well, you're also writing the book. You have to remember. Because I, mean, like, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I also can say now thing. that I have written a full book, well, two full books, it is, uh, yeah. I can't, 
yes, it's very different than what I was doing before, which was, you know, sitting behind the computer, doing a lot of the organizing and planning and yeah, making yeah. sure that everything's worded the same way and all that. So talking of books, let's talk about your first book. So that was The Fearless Baker, and that came out in 17? Yes, 2017. Okay, 2017. So there's something about... The title of the book to me is very evocative, and it kind of says to me... Like it's like almost a, a manifesto for confidence and a real declaration of I will teach you how to be more confident in the kitchen. What is it about teaching people that you seem to really have latched onto? Because it does seem to be something I really associate with you when you post recipes online, you really go into detail about how to succeed. And I think to me that's a really a big sign of a successful baking writer is to give people the tools. So does that just come from how you learned when you were younger or? Well, uh, I I think it's the same. First of all, I also think that your recipes are really great in this regard and that there's an element of, um, I I like what you said of wanting people to succeed. And that was the biggest thing for me is I just remembered in all those books I was working on that, I would edit the recipes that the chefs would give me and I would think they looked perfect. And then many months later, I would have that book in my kitchen and I would be making something and I would have a question. And I would think, if I don't know this and I know this book very well, how would somebody else know this? And it was all that inherent stuff that professional chefs in particular don't always think of describing because they know, they know. And... um. And this is also to say all of those books were excellent and the recipes worked, but I was craving more information. And that is how it took me a little while to get there. In fact, I had a great conversation with you once, I think when we were in Chicago and we were talking about the early work that we'd done versus the work that we're doing now. (laughs) And I'm very proud of the work that I've done for the most part, but you can go back to some of my earlier recipes and they're I don't do that as effectively as I try to do now, um, which is I even write in recipes, don't freak out. It's going to look clumpy. (laughs) Keep going. Because I remembered thinking I'd be making a recipe and I would think, why does it look so clumpy? And then, you know, five minutes later, be like, no, no, it looks okay. It's all right. It's fine. Yeah. And so I try to then tell people and kind of hold their hand in that way because somebody like you who reads the recipe is going to say, oh, well, I know what it's supposed to look like there, but not everybody yeah. does, especially when you're making something no, for the not. first time. And spe- the one of the times I notice it the most is when I'm trying to make something um, that originates maybe in another country. And yes. I know you're very well-traveled, so you have probably experienced this as well. There are so, it becomes much harder because between translation, if that's an issue, yeah. and it becomes much harder. And so I started writing in that level of detail when specifically when I was making things that like were coming from elsewhere. And I wanted to make sure that the person at home really was going to have the best chance of succeeding with it. And so I would write some of those instructions. And I never had thought so much about being a teacher, but I Mm -hmm. know that when I was learning how to bake, I really valued the information I got from my teachers and a lot of the information that I share, you know, I still am crediting chef grueling from the culinary Institute. (laughs) And, you know, like I will specifically call out these people because when you have a great teacher, then 
that knowledge sticks with you. And I think it is possible to give somebody a recipe for pudding and have them walk away with more than just having made pudding. Now they understand custards a little better. And that is sort of my goal is that you don't just bake this one time and think, oh man, I made so many dishes. I'm not going to do that again for a while. I want you Mm -hmm. to make one of my recipes and want to get back in the kitchen two or three days later to make something else. I I come across this idea of kind of building blocks of baking. And I think one of the things I think is the most useful with home bakers is the fact that they are slowly giving themselves an education by baking. And the more they do it, the more they become comfortable with it. And I think if you have a recipe writer or a cup of holder like you who actually cares about that, it really helps the home baker because it will give them a like a quickened learning curve because they're not having to figure out those things necessarily on their own. It's almost like replicating having that person in your kitchen saying, oh, don't worry, that's fine. And which obviously if you're baking at home on your own, you don't have that person looking over your shoulder into the bowl and going, oh, it's a lumpy yeah, mess. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And I think um, that's incredibly valuable. I think it's also taking some of that, the books that I enjoyed the most, one of the books I loved really early on was the Cake Bible. When I was you know, 16, I was in the bookstore. I couldn't buy it, so I would just read it. Now now Rose is a friend, so I've, I've told her, don't worry, I bought it. I'm not just going into the bookstore <laughs> and reading it. Um, but, but I remembered just thinking how thorough her recipes were. Mm-hmm. And even now I tell someone, if you make one of her recipes, if you read it very carefully and you do everything she says, you are going to come out with one of the best things yeah. that you've ever made because she doesn't leave anything out. And that's why the book's so big. That's why her books are so, and I love a big book. I love a big yeah. fat cookbook. I wish my, my <laughs> new cookbook, I had to cut so much out of it and it's still a big fat book, I mean, but I wanted it to be even fatter. Yes. Oh, I took too many pictures. I had to get rid of some of them, but we'll have them to share on the, on the web. So that'll be great too. <laughs> so for those of uh, for those people listening who don't know about that book, The Cake Bible is by um, Rose Levy Barenbaum yes. and you work with her now. So I there's do. a full circle moment there. How did that come about? Also, oh, I should say gosh. that book is kind of legendary. It is yeah. It's called the Cake Bible for a reason. It's not. She ain't just whistling Dixie. Yeah, she knows what she's talking about. It's probably the most technically based home baking cookbook I can think of. And it goes into even flour contents and absolutely. What's funny about why I love that book that's so funny is that then when I went on to working in a publisher, I was producing books that were for professionals predominantly. Mm -hmm. And so, um, her book, when you read it, it is actually marketed towards people at home, but it reads a lot like a professional book. Yes. And it's something it's something that I love about that book because it wasn't the people at people at home are completely capable of doing what chefs do, but they Definitely. may just need a different way of looking at it to achieve it. Yeah. So um I worked on the first book of roses that I worked on was the baking Bible, which is um, three books ago. I think she has written a lot of books guys. And um, Mm -hmm. I was just kind of a kitchen assistant. I knew the photographer I had worked with him before and they needed help in the kitchen and I had just gone freelance. And so they asked me to come and I was 
beside myself how old would I have been like <laughs> 25 maybe and was just like I'm working with Rosalie Bandown this is so cool I was sending people pictures and texts at, at one point Rose and I were shaping a tart together in the basement of the house where we were shooting this cookbook because it was colder down there mm-hmm. and she was teaching me about how important it has to be to be just this cold and she had a thermometer in the room and she was just so precise and I loved working with her and um we really hit it off from that first time. And so I have, I've worked on her last several books as a food stylist. And um, and she wrote the foreword for my first book, The Fearless Baker, which was um, a true full circle, total pinch me moment. Because you'd go yeah. to that 16-year-old kid, you know, illegally reading her book in the bookstore <laughs> to having her name on my book. It was very, very special. And she is- yeah. She is a mentor to me for sure. And also a very, very dear friend. I feel very lucky to to know Rose. It's also really funny that you say about it being a book for home bakers, but how many times have you walked into a bakery and it's there on a shelf, tattered, used a lot? It is definitely like a foundational book. And that is something that I, I will never achieve it at the level that Rose has achieved it. But that's something that I aspire to is I Mm -hmm. I'm writing the books for people at home, but my goal is that I would also have something interesting enough that it would get a professional like yourself or one of my friends who's a pastry chef. It would also get them excited to at least check out what I'm talking about. That's sort of that middle ground that I'm, I'm striving for a little bit. She definitely has achieved that. Definitely. So your new book, which comes out in November, 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 um, is all about pie, which to me seems like it's now just synonymous with you. You know, I think of pie, I think of Erin, I think of thousands and thousands and thousands of pies, (laughs) and I think of Erin. Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy to be thought of in along with pie. I just really, I think I've practically become one at this point. I've made and eaten so many. Um, I mean, yeah, my self-proclaimed, you know, pie queen. <laughs> Don't forget. I'll never forget that. I, I'm going to have to, if I want to bring that little level of confidence to, to my year, I'm going to oh, yeah. just start being like queen up in here. Um, <laughs> yeah. The new book is called the book on pie and it is, um, my assistant actually gave it that title because she was telling people, oh, my, my, um, I can't, I'm not really her boss. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. I knew you saying, were struggling to say that word. Like you just didn't want to say boss. I didn't <laughs> want to say boss. She was saying, oh, this woman I work with is. <laughs> I bet she used the term boss. Uh, my boss is writing Mm -hmm. the book on pie is what she said. And I told that to my editor and she was like, Oh my gosh, that's what we should call it. And, um, it's, uh, I actually, I'm, I'm really glad that my first book was the fearless baker for a variety of reasons. But I remember speaking with you about, again, the kind of journey of writing multiple books and this book is so, so special to me. And I'm really glad it was not the first one because I did actually pitch an all pie book as my first book. And I'm really glad that it wasn't yeah. the one that they grabbed onto because I was able to do my job uh, 
even better this time because I kind of knew what yeah. to expect and I planned you things out. I learned a lot. And that's even after having worked on books for so many other people in various capacities, I still felt like my first book, which I love very much and I'm very proud of, there are so many things I was able to do better in yeah. the book on pie. And the number one of those things is I insisted on photographing every single recipe so that even if I couldn't fit them all in the book, I could show you people what they would look yeah. like because I do know that people really love that. And then as we were doing that, we shot every single pie that we made overhead, like just on marble, kind of in the same spot so that we could make sort of a stop motion promo. Oh, and just to give you an idea over the course of the photo shoot, we ended up with 440 some single <laughs> images of overhead pie. Now, some of those were like duplicates, but for the most part, we made we made so many pies, Ed. <laughs> so many pies. The most made in one day was 24. I do have Whoa. two ovens. So we were just churning out pies and I had several incredible helpers. Um, I was definitely not doing that alone because I would have no arms anymore if that was the case. I, I think I remember you posting a picture of the shoot days and it was a picture of, I think it was maybe like five people in the kitchen. And you know, your kitchen's a lovely sized kitchen, but it looked like it was a, a party of people, you know, yes. preparing pies uh, for I a have... shoot. It looks... I have two kitchens in my house, which officially makes me a extra. Dream. Yes. Dream. It's, also, it's my boyfriend's dream, so I don't mess up the home kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> right? See, it makes everyone happier to just have two kitchens. Oh, definitely. Why doesn't everyone do it? Um, and the so we were kind of shooting in the basement where there's one of the kitchens, and there's more space down there, ironically, but because there's more space, we could fit more people in there. So there was usually <laughs> one person up here in the you know home kitchen alone and like four people <laughs> jammed together downstairs and my dog and the photographer. And yeah, it was a lot, but it was a lot of fun. And, and the result of the book, like... I can't wait to see it. Oh my gosh. I am so excited in a very different way than from the first book. And one of the reasons I think is what you said, this is very close to my heart. Like I felt the emotion writing this book and it's not even, I don't write, you know, soliloquies about pie necessarily. That's not even what it is, mm -hmm. but I really think I was able to put a lot of the information that I have learned just by making so many Mm -hmm. into a digestible, uh, you know, handbook. I know handbook isn't a sexy word, <laughs> but as a baker and somebody who really loves details, I originally was pitching this book to have handbook in the title because I was like, it's like a manual. It's like got everything you need to know. And these were all words that made my publisher so angry. They were like, it is, it's way more exciting than a handbook or a manual. Like it's not a car manual. It's a pie manual. It's already more exciting than the average manual would be. But you know, it, it's got a lot of information so that you can kind of mix and match, which again is something that you as a very skilled baker could do with no problem. You know, you would grab any book that someone mm. wrote and know that you could use that crust and that filling and, you know, kind mm. of put them together. But um, I really built the book in a way so that you can create your own pies 
to suit whatever flavors you want. And that's one of the things I really love about pie too, is the mix and match ability yeah. with it. Excellent. Well, I'm personally very excited for that, and I will be spending all of my November and December making pie. I mean, I <laughs> oh yes, I. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a great pie maker. I, we'll see if you if you get even one nugget of new information from this book. I will be so <laughs> I'm excited. Sure I'll get so many. I think the one thing that everyone who works in food, and I think this is a really valuable thing to take away, just generally, is I was once talking to. Um, the former pastry chef of uh, the French Laundry, Claire, who is British, and she moved back to the UK and I met her. And I had just come off of Bake Off and I think I'd just started writing my first book. And she said to me, the one thing that any pastry chef should always be is curious and learning. And the second, I mean, any chef really, but the second a chef thinks they know everything they should just basically get out of the kitchen because I think you should always be willing to learn something always be willing to improve something and I think that curiosity is always something I look for in a cookbook writer in a baker in in whatever because it means they're still able to be excited and therefore able to excite me with what they do so I think that's a very valuable thing So we're going to get to our second segment, which is the shopping list. So this is meant to give us a window into your culinary style, your personal style, whatever, just a little window into Erin. So you can go into detail if you want, or you can do it completely rapid fire. It's up to you. Depends how emotive you feel about the questions. Um, So biscuits or cookies? I am talking about American biscuits, not what we think of as biscuits. Thank you for clarifying, because I was going to ask a follow-up question. (laughs) Biscuits all the way, baby. I say, it's not something I ever grew up with, especially a savory biscuit. Um, But a savory biscuit now to me is just just one of the best things. Turned into a breakfast sandwich. Oh, just the best thing. The best part about biscuits is they can be sweet. So mm-hmm. if you were really saying biscuit or cookie, I could make a biscuit with chocolate chips in it and you get the best yeah. of both a cookie world and a biscuit world. <laughs> so talking about pie, sour cherry or blueberry? <gasps> sour cherry. <laughs> I really didn't know if I was going to be able to pick, but sour cherry. <laughs> I, I, I see. I love this segment because people will suddenly go, I didn't think I can answer. And then instantly they're like, oh, no. Yes, this one. I'm more um, decisive than I give myself credit for. Like when I'm trying to pick a restaurant at night, no, I would never be able to pick one. But between two <laughs> pies, I'll be able to make a decision. <laughs> also, sour cherry to me is so special because it's so hard to find in the UK like almost impossible to find. So when you do, you can find them frozen in a few places, but finding fresh sour cherries is just nigh on impossible. So a good you sour cherry pie get is a tree, very special. I feel like you're going to have to. I live in a tiny in London. I have no outdoor space. <laughs> Maybe someday you'll have a sour cherry tree on your you know, fire <laughs> escape. <laughs> just a tiny little one. Um, Kansas or New Jersey? Kansas. Kansas. <laughs> no, um, I've actually. I should I really... why I'm saying the slash thing. It's because Erin lives yes. in New Jersey, but basically works a lot yes. of the time in New York. Yes. So for a while, I wasn't sure where Erin lived. Yes. And then it's like, I live in New Jersey. I'm like, oh, okay. Erin okay, okay. some street cred for working in New York. <laughs> and then people find out where she lives. And it. No, um, I think that would well, be pretty impossible. Two kitchens. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
I think it would be pretty impossible for me to choose that, but I will. I'll have to say Kansas because I have Kansas tattooed on the back of my neck. I don't have New York or New Jersey anywhere, <laughs> just for reference sake. And it's, you know, it's where I'm from and I, uh, I do love it very much, even though I don't live there. I do love it. Fair. Cats or dogs? Dogs. <laughs> dogs. I asked the question just because Erin has the most adorable dog called Brimley who... <laughs> Is you know, I think I message you every time you post a picture of Brimley. Brimley <laughs> is very beloved. Like I'm pretty convinced that the majority of my followers are like, ah, oh, she's okay, but Brimley though. <laughs> um food styling or food writing? Writing, for sure. Yeah. The the styling aspect is a type of creativity that like I didn't know that I would ever get to do because it is really mm-hmm. fun. But you know, uh, the writing is where I feel like I'm being the most myself. Fair. I get that. And so that is the end of our main podcast. Don't forget there will be a second bonus episode over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes. But before we go there, where can everybody follow you, Erin? You can follow me on Instagram at E McDowell. And uh, you can also find a lot of uh, videos featuring me around the internet for some of my clients like the New York Times, Food 52, um, and the Food Network. Excellent. And your book, The Book on Pie, is out the in book November. On pie. Yes, November 10th. Pre-ordered. <laughs> yes, but it's available for pre-order now to, <laughs> to shove it, it further down everyone's throats. throats. But you're going to be very happy to have it come exactly. November 10th. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much, Darren. So that was our episode with the wonderful Erin McDowell. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved that conversation. I thought it was one of my favourites to record. And I'm so excited now about A, just making more pie, and B, Erin's wonderful book, The Book on Pie, which comes out in November. As I say in the podcast, there is also a bonus episode over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes. And one of the things we talk about is our biggest baking disasters on photo shoots. It's a really fun addition to the podcast, so I hope you go over and listen. And of course, there's also lots of bonus recipes over on the Patreon as well. And my new book, One Tin Bakes, is also available for pre-order. Details are all down below in the episode notes. Until next week, I'll see you later. Bye.